Hello, dear friends, and welcome to my podcast dedicated to sight reading through the lens of the historically informed performance practice. And today it's one of those episodes where we are exploring the greatest people of the early music scene. And my guest is Catalina Wiesens. Could you tell about yourself a little bit more? Yes. Hi, Darina. Great, <laughs> great to be here and thanks for the invite. Uh, what can I tell about myself? So I'm a musician specialized on historical keyboards, ranging from reconstructions, so to call on quotes of medieval and, and early Renaissance instruments that don't survive anymore, and Renaissance and Baroque, mostly keyboard instruments, uh, with a special focus on antique instruments. And you were studying at the Scola, right? Yes, so I came to the Scola in 2007, uh, starting with a harpsichord uh, with Andrea Marcon, and then I did medieval keyboards opening where there was not such a thing yet. <laughs> uh, I mean, already for for many decades, there have been people like Christophe de Ligne, like, for example, doing, bringing the organetto here and and doing all of this. But basically, I started, I was the first master official on medieval keyboards. Uh, but then I also, outside of the scholar, then I continued doing contemporary music performance with historical keyboards at the Music Academy. And I lived in Basel for many years and Basically, the Scola Library has been one of the main sources of everything that I've done over the last 15 years or so. By the way, uh, we are now at the Scola Library at the Inna Lore Studio, <laughs> the famous one with all the pictures that are surrounding us from the Scola from, from the previous times. Could you tell more about your studies at the contemporary music department when did it start and how did you combine both approaches with whom were you studying so i was let me think i was doing contemporary music from 2010 to 2013 i was into contemporary music performance since i would say quite early in my musical studies so already when i was 16 i was working with composers back in chile back at home um, everything that was being composed for the piano at the conservatory, one of the conservatories in in Chile, in Santiago, I was really trying to work along with that. And then it the, the interest for contemporary music also was there when I started my harpsichord studies in the States. It continued in Germany, in Freiburg, where I also did study harpsichord, and where there was already an interesting tradition, a sort of alternating between what had happened historically in Freiburg, in the uh, Musikhochschule, um, with contemporary music and the harpsichord early music scene. But then actually focusing so much more on getting very specialized on specific fields of early music and historical keyboard performance, I thought I really needed to take more time to dive back to one which I would say were my roots into music and my fascinations was contemporary music. So 
um, I decided to do this master's. I think I was the first historical keyboard player that did this specialized master in contemporary music performance. And I started with uh, Jürg Henneberger. Well, we had many tutors and it was a fantastic program that gave us lots of flexibility. The main thing was to work with actually the composers themselves. And so every few weeks we had these wonderful composers coming from all over the world to work with the class. And that was quite interesting in the depth inside, um, depth and insight that these composers gave us firsthand, which is quite interesting to put in opposition or to say in contrast what would we do with historical music sources on trying to understand the intentions of the composers and so on. Because, of course, you can find parallels. You can find also things that are, cannot be paralleled, thinking of, of a philosophy to composition that is quite different, but at the same time it's quite interesting to get uh, an insight into the process of a composer, despite of the style or the methodology mm -hmm. for composing used in different periods. Also, the, the division between improvisation and composition and what is that in the process of the composer and the performer understanding it and how you incorporated it in the reading of what we have as a score. So... I think there were lots of points in common more than in division that also in this exchange conversation with with performers and composers to such a, to that uh, level was really I think nourishing into also the bringing lots of elements into the reflection that we often have but sort of stays a little bit in a in a singular bubble, so to put it. It's a way weird way to put it. But when we think about the processes of composition, improvisation, notation, reading with early music. Yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, I've never thought about it because we are at the Scola here, we're not exposed to this process of composition. As for instance, you were exposed at the contemporary music department and having this direct contact that is amazing actually to think of this process from kind of and knowing behind the scenes. And I think it also kind of extends your horizon as an early music artist and being active in that field. Could you maybe tell more about your current position, that amazing, beautiful collection in Bologna and your experience about it? Yeah, so since last year, um, I'm working as curator and artistic director of the Tagliavini collection in the... San Colombano Museum in Bologna, which is one of the largest historical keyboard collections with sounding and functioning mm. uh, historical keyboards. It has a collection from uh, antique instruments dating from the early 16th century, mostly into the mid-19th century, but also with instruments from the early 20th century. It's really fascinating there. Of course, I'm, I'm a museum manager. I'm directing the museum as well, as well as the, as the concert season and the educational activities. For me, it's sort of combining what I know as a musician and what I have developed in, in sort of an artistic vision, but at the same time, the tools of what I believe in that the musical heritage can do 
both for understanding historical performance practice from a very specialist point of view, but also what is our role or our potential role and of the musical heritage, which goes beyond the individual. Like we're so focused today in the performer, in the name and so on. But for culture, so to say, for society, it goes much more beyond our transitory presence here. And it's very strange to say it, but it's the objects mm -hmm. and it's the architecture that will remain as a testimony of what we do, right? Today we have also recordings and so on that uh, has that sense, if I would uh, put it in a way as transcendence, although one might argue with that, immortalization of uh, a testimony of, of a moment. What is interesting is to go into the lives of, for example, this what what material culture means to us, this historical antique uh, keyboards to us today in, in, in the sense that they can inspire not only what we know about performance. Yes, they still can inform a lot that has not been unveiled and studied in depth. There's lots of research to do in that level uh, still. But there's also a level of getting inspired by the network of ideas and social conditions that create through craftsmanship these instruments. Mm -hmm. But they are really part of, on one way, what we think more as musicians, a functional need for providing music, right? To satisfy customers' mm -hmm. needs. But then also they represent to me much more and that they can give us a window into the past, into stories that is, is not only to be communicated to someone that is a music lover or to a, let's say, a performer of specifically music between 1670 and 1724, I don't know, but to even a larger audience and how do we reach that. And therefore it brings another perspective on what we're doing as musicians specializing in such a reduced or specific field in music history. Oh, that's amazing. When I'm thinking about this now, you have all these instruments in, in this collection, in this fantastic collection. And yeah, it's true, they are objects, but they can tell us so much. And again, it's a different perspective that we are going now not from the perspective of an individual musician who is present on stage, Stage and doing something at the moment, but this object survives through centuries and still brings so and carries so much knowledge. And yeah, it's a different perspective, and it's it's really interesting and fascinating to to hear about it from you. Super. And how do you keep all these instruments in shape that they are still playable and they still function? Well, the work has been done over decades, and one of the things um, that uh, Maestro Tagliavini has done was to ensure not only by the way that the curator, conservator was meant to be chosen uh, in the future when he was not there, but also through restorations that were very philologically informed, thinking that most of the restorations were done in the 70s, 80s, and some of them the early 90s. And then, of course, this uh, collection now is in a historical building dating from the 7th century. 
with many layers of history, many layers in different uh, stories, so to say. So it's very complex to keep the conditions that are an actual modern museum would require for these instruments. This is a huge challenge that we're dealing with uh, <laughs> every day, mm -hmm. literally. <laughs> and then making sure that um, we have also a, a constant care by technicians that are doing the maintenance of these instruments on a regular basis and evaluating, analyzing what are the conditions from time to time and, and see what needs to be done. And the question about that, you said, you mentioned that some of the restorations uh, were made in the 70s. Is there a slight problem with that because at that time maybe people were not aware that much that the restoration has to be done in a correct way respecting the way that maybe the instruments were made at the time and maybe uh, putting the same uh, material that was made of how do you deal with this kind of problems well i would say on one hand the instruments are very lucky that they came into the hands of Tagliavini because he being one of a generation of, of pioneers of a historical keyboard performance practice. I would say like Leonhard really left uh, an important legacy through his teaching, uh, an important generation, but also through recordings. Tagliavini mainly left also through lots of teaching important performers all over the world, but also through the instruments. And he was one of, a, there was sort of a generation of musician, performers, musicologists, slash collectors. And he was one of the ones that was, I would say, most aware, given the time, given the 70s and so on, that aware of, of what we know today about conservation, about not doing types of restorations that were highly invasive mm -hmm. and so on. Of course, much of the documentation that we would need to really assess the type of uh, restoration that was done in the 70s is lacking, although he was as meticulous, I think, as he would get in that generation for trying to be accurate and documentary about all the procedures. So it's very valuable that we have that. But of course, you could imagine that over the decades, that learning process, and he was involved in all the restoration process very, very closely, although he didn't do it in himself. So he brought in that expertise. And one of his acquisition requirements was that the instruments that he was buying were possibly not or, or most likely not restored during the earlier part of the 20th century, which was the period where many of these instruments exactly uh, were were highly damaged in in their in their state i mean we have 16th century instruments that certainly had already restorations or adaptations during the 17th and 18th centuries right 
But then it's another thing. It's coming from a tradition while the, the, the restorations that happened during the earlier 20th century or even late 19th century were highly invasive and not respecting a type of tradition that would preserve some of the important characteristics of, of the object. <laughs> yes, and um, could you define one or more than one <laughs> instruments um, that are very special to you? So the instruments from this collection, they are very special and very dear to your hearts and there are, let's say, your favorite instruments. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> I get emotional in this part. <laughs> there is a harpsichord that is the earliest harpsichord of the collection in a playing condition. That is a harpsichord made in Naples uh, by Niccolo Albana in 1584 that probably also has Uh, a very interesting story related to the sister of Torquato Tasso, so interesting figures in there. Of course, many of, of these things come from an oral tradition, so to say, and of association networks of histories. But um, that instrument has a very, very particular voice that is very dear to me. It's a very moving instrument and it's almost incredible that everyone I play this instrument for just to show it, there's this suspension in the air. There's something very touching about the soul of this instrument
then uh, there is I, there, there's lots of instruments, but there's also another Neapolitan spinet from 1598 mm-hmm. uh, by Fabri that also is an enigmatic instrument to me, but that I think has lots of windows and doors to that are still closed that still can be opened about that that we can learn about the craftsmanship and the thought and lots of processes that are behind this instrument and that this instrument represents. instruments that are a pleasure and and very inspiring to play but also that you see oh I really need to to do research and and spend more time and uh, yeah on getting to know more about them and do you still function as a keyboard player right and as a organetto player could you tell us more about what you're working on right now with your instrument and maybe some exciting projects that you're doing and also maybe you could tell about the cd that you have recorded also with dina koenig it's called the state of women yeah you can tell me more yeah Oh, the state of women would be great. It's the city of ladies. Yes, the city of ladies. And we're very much looking forward for this city finally to come out. I'm very proud, not uh, let's say to myself, but about the whole team, Servir Antico, my ensemble. But all the team uh, went into this project so wholeheartedly. And and the music came out of of, of this of this exchange, not only of music and wanting to be making music during also a time of COVID, but also of the subject, which is reflecting on the role 
of women in society throughout history and also different perspectives that we can have into arts and culture through that gaze of certain historical figures that we try to approach, like Christine de Pizan and Martin Lefranc, who deal in the 15th century with the querelle des dames, or the women's question. In any case, this is one of the projects where I play the organetto. Uh, with Servir Antico, I mostly play organetto, but it's much more about the research around... I would say a historical or social subject that is framed in through music and shared through music with the audience. Yeah, with Organetto. So it's quite interesting because also my predecessor at the collection as a curator and artistic director, Luve Taminga, a fantastic organist and keyboard player specialized also in 16th and 17th century uh, music. He was also very interested in the reconstructions and the study of iconographical sources as a basis for uh, knowing more about uh, historical keyboards. So in the museum, we have also already a collection that was uh, of projects made by the museum of medieval and early Renaissance keyboards. So with with organetto, so bringing in my organetto and basically and other uh, positive uh, uh, Renaissance organs, uh, it's sort of complementing this this whole history and tradition of the museum and the collection. What is nice with uh, with organetto is. Is on one hand the unknown, the much that there is to do, but I find also the inspiration that I can take so directly from non-organetto music, right? Because there's no specific music to the instrument. So I am forced to approach it from the perspective of someone that looks across the disciplines. Um, so therefore you go into organology, you go, go into even just, you need to learn about polyphony and other types of performances mm -hmm. that are not strictly mm -hmm. keyboard playing. Mm -hmm. I work a lot with, uh, of course, with vocal music, but going deep into the re rhetoric uh, used at the time for composing text, mm -hmm. of using form and so on, on how that influences how you approach an instrument, mm -hmm. technically. Mm -hmm. So that is fascinating for me still to keep developing that, but also the use of, of, of the instrument being a new instrument. We don't have antique instruments. All of them are hypotheses. Uh, and they are modern instruments. So for me, uh, using this type of instrument in new creation, in contemporary music, in sound exploration is very important. So in the, for example, in the last recording that I did, only devoted to organ sounds, so to say, mm -hmm. uh, I explore lots of uh, new compositions alongside with medieval and Renaissance music on these reconstructions and on antique instruments. And then, uh, yeah, there are a few projects, new compositions also coming. And there's lots of interest uh, that I'm, I'm working alongside with instrument builders, uh, organ builders that are really interested in the organetto as a source of 
rethinking the organ. So instrument builders that are doing these hyper organs or instruments that are involving high-end technology mm-hmm. uh, to be able to control and to get closer to the soul on the instrument and to e- exponentially explore what the organ is. They are getting interesting there. I'm getting really uh, calls and contacts from all over the world of these organ builders that are just want to know from the organetto and from my approach to the air and the sound and how that is mm-hmm. changing a little bit the organ world. It's quite mm-hmm. interesting. Using flexible air and how much control and overtones and undertones and all of that. Yeah. So that is, is quite exciting. And also I'm uh, developing a project at the museum with using the organetto for the visually disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's exciting things coming up with that. Thank you very much, Catalina. It's uh, like everything what you are doing, it's like a wonderful dream came true and even organetto, an instrument that would don't uh, we don't have a copy of or we don't have an evidence from the time it's here with us and you're playing it for us thanks a lot i will put all the links uh, to your website to the website of the collection into the description of the episode have a nice day and thank you very much for joining me thanks so much darina <laughs> thank you